0: hello everybody Uh, welcome to Conway Hall Uh, I've just got a few messages to go through before we introduce our esteemed um, panel first and most importantly and in accordance with all European regulations let me just let you know (laughs) there are no fire fire drills planned today but uh, if if there is uh, if the alarm does sound then do head for an an exit, or a a Frexit, as we uh, call them these days. (laughs) Um, You can see them signposted around the room. Um, They all lead ultimately to Red Lion Square, where I am assured that we need to congregate around the statue of Bertrand Russell, so there'll be a a general knowledge quiz about which (laughs) statue to aim for. (laughs) We are are live streaming, so please resist all temptation to swear, Um, and, Please, uh, we won't say turn your phones off, in fact, just turn, turn the, 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 ring, the ringers off, uh, but feel free to tweet uh, capaciously with uh, hashtag ConwayHallEU, the name for this, uh, this emergency uh, discussion that we're having. Um, I will introduce our, our panel uh, now then, so uh, we're all here to discuss uh, what's happened, why it's happened, what we can learn from it, uh, what's going to happen in the future. Um, and so, uh, from, the, from the far end, we've got uh, Matthew Goodwin, Professor of Politics and International rela- uh, Relations at the University of uh, Kent. Um, then we have uh, Shannon Harmon, uh, who is of the uh, Stop the £35,000 campaign, which we'll, we'll hear more about uh, later. Uh, James O'Malley, journalist and uh, leader of the petition <laughs> to declare London independence. <laughs> Tough crowd, James. <laughs> uh, we have Takis Trid- Tridimas, a uh, professor of European law at King's uh, College London. Um, I'm sorry you didn't get a similar response, Taggerts. And Professor Grayling, Professor of Phil- Philosophy at New College of Humanities, uh, London. <laughs> I, extend, I extend my, my personal uh, welcome to the two of you on the, on, on the far side there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, name's, my name's Guy Foster, um, I, I'm Head of Research at Brundolf, and I'm only here to chair uh, the discussion between these, uh, these knowledgeable people. So uh, we're going to start straight away, we're going to have a bit of a retrospective and talk about how we have ended up in this, in this position, and I hoped that, uh, Matthew, you might start by giving some of the background what we've learnt about what motivated people to make this momentous decision?
1: Uh, okay, let's. That, that's that's very that's a big, uh, big question. Um, what 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 motivated Brexit? Uh, about about a year ago, we were in this hall talking about um, just over a year ago, talking about the general election, which now feels like a generation uh, ago. Um, we were talking about the rise of UKIP, and in particular, we were talking about. Um, a sort of growing divide within Britain uh, between essentially, and I'm going to be quite crude, but between groups of voters that were very comfortable with globalization and and EU integration, Um, lots of Londoners, lots of uh, well-educated, high-skilled, socially mobile uh, voters, and another set of voters that were very anxious about rapid social uh, and economic change, Uh, not doing as well, uh, pessimistic about the future, left behind by the country's economic transformation. And also, that divide was as much about values as economics. Two groups of voters holding a very different outlook on on social and cultural issues. Now, Fast forward to what we saw at the referendum, uh, and you saw exactly the same uh, conflict uh, play out. If you look at where Brexit was strongest, uh, support for Brexit, Median income was £18,000 versus median income of around £30,000 in areas where Remain uh, was strongest. Uh, Brexit really won over communities that were predominantly white, uh, suffering typically with more economic disadvantage, at at low average levels of education, Uh, and those areas turned out. Right, one of the reasons Brexit won, and we saw it all in the opinion. Polls just before the vote, you could see that the Brexit supporters were really committed. And down the east coast of England in particular, turnout was really high. And they took that opportunity to really impose a different set of values on the country. You know, and as my co-author, Robert Ford, uh, we wrote a book called Revolt on the Right. Uh, it said on the morning of the 24th, he said, have you woken up feeling as though another group of voters have imposed their values on you? well, now you know how UKIP voters have felt for 20 years. And it was, you know, an, I, in a way, it was a, sort of, you know, it was a nice way of just reminding everybody that you know, we are incredibly divided by class, by geography, by generation. And all of that played out uh, at the vote on uh, June the 23rd.
0: So is, is, it, is it possible uh, that it's not just... I mean, you make it sound like it's not just about the issues, it's not just about people telling us how bendy our bananas can be and stuff like that. You feel that, that, that that's, that's certainly the
1: case, it's, it's something deeper and more
0: societal than that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I don't think this was really about Britain's relationship with the EU. I think predominantly this was a moment where a group of voters who have felt cut adrift from Westminster for a long time, Particularly as the main parties focused on the middle classes more so than the working classes, and a group of voters who have felt profoundly uncomfortable not just with immigration but with cultural change, more generally, took an opportunity to uh, let the country know how they felt about that. And they were not—and let me be a bit provocative, perhaps, given given the uh, petitions going around—you um, know—they were not complacent about the vote. If you look at where the support now for a second referendum is strongest in Camden and Hackney, Uh, those areas also were among the top 10% for having the lowest turnout at the actual referendum. Uh, So I can sort of understand the sense of anger and frustration among Remainers, but one group of voters turned up and really wanted to have their views and their values known, and another group of voters didn't uh, to the same extent. And I, I just think that's worth reflecting on.
0: And, and has it enabled them to have their values known?
1: Or well, we're leaving the EU. I mean, you know, firstly we're leaving the EU, and, and secondly, uh, every major Conservative Party contender is committing themselves to immigration reform, which is what they want. And the Labour Party now, you know, one stat: more than 60% of Labour constituencies voted for Brexit. You know, there are more questions here for the Labour Party than there are for the Conservatives. And so these, these voters, in a sense, have got what they want in that both of the main outlets in British politics, both of the main parties now, are going to have to somehow readapt around um, uh, Britain being out of the EU and also having stronger restrictions on immigration. Uh, th- that, that's ultimately what, what those voters want. Now, whether they'll be satisfied, or whether they're expecting more radical change is another conversation. Um, But, you know, they they have had a profound effect on on British politics. This is the first time, don't forget, in British history that Parliament's been told to do something it doesn't want to do. You know, 521 seats in England and Wales voted for Brexit, and around 140 MPs wanted Brexit. Uh, So this is sort of interesting for constitutional reasons, not just because of Scotland, but because the people have imposed themselves on an institution that thinks fundamentally differently about this issue.
0: But, but is it, what I meant really was, is it that they have these values that are, that are now prevalent or is it that they just don't share, is it just a vote against the establishment on sort of whatever cause happened to be available you know, that you happen to get offered a vote on?
1: Well, if you look, for example, at uh, you know what was driving support for UKIP and Nigel Farage over the last five years, it was predominantly a, a, a vote that was against immigration, that was uh, against the European Union, and was against Westminster. I mean, there's a nice question that the British Social Attitude Survey asks, which is, do you feel that politics is representing you? And if you just run that question among C2, D and E voters, sort of skilled workers, unskilled workers, Um, unemployed uh, never before has uh, the level been as high as it is now in terms of people saying they do not feel that politics is adequately representing them Uh, you know and there are let's be honest there are good reasons why voters feel that way Um, the transition to a service sector economy post-industrial economy has not worked out very well particularly for groups outside London and the southeast Um, Many of those voters feel that they were never really given an opportunity to have a say over the arrival of uh, free movement, Uh, and many of those voters feel that they were effectively shafted by the focus of new labour and then compassionate conservatism on middle class swing seats. So, I can kind of understand why, in a referendum context, they decided, I've had enough. I'm actually going to let people know that it's not all about focus groups and swing voters. Uh, you know, and they took that opportunity. Okay. Well,
0: perhaps uh, I'll ask uh, Professor Grayling. I mean, we, we've got these two. We've got this two-party system, and one of those parties is born out of the unions and protecting labour, and one of them's born out of out of landowners. Is it? Is that the nature of of the of the lack of political representation that the, the, the reason those parties came to exist is no longer aligned with the society that they're trying to
2: represent? I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, they are very strong on their traditions, both of the major parties and uh, traditions tend to get out of alignment with present realities in ways that make it very difficult sometimes for the parties themselves to understand their own, their own constituency. Um, Labour uh, being officially Remain seems to have really lost touch with a very large segment of its traditional vote or the people that they would normally, uh, normally talk to. The the, um, additional problem to that is that this this has been quite a long time in the making. If you go to our continental uh, partners in the European Union and travel around uh, those countries, you see the national flag flying alongside the EU flag. Every major infrastructure project which is on the go will have a sign-up with the EU flag, showing how much input there is financially and in other ways to those projects. Here there is silence. You never see an EU flag, and you don't know, except in certain parts of the country, whether or not this is EU money which is making a difference there. So the the, the presence of the EU in the 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 life of the of the nation and the polity is um, um, played down in the UK and has been ever since we became members, first of the Common Market. And this is a, um, a left. On the one hand, you have silence from people who should know better and should be able to articulate the benefits of EU membership. And on the other hand, you have a relentless, uh, hostile, sceptical rhetoric from the tabloids, from the right wing of the Tory party, from UKIP, making everybody think that somehow or other, actually, we are net losers by being members of the EU. It's only people who, who, uh, I think, travel a bit more, who who work with um, partners in uh, other EU countries, who have a sense of a genuine common purpose and that, that sense is lacking in the general population here. So I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, to the idea that this wasn't only about the EU or membership of the EU, other factors came into play. And I think the big, the big losers actually are the, are the political parties and we see from the um, potential for a major split in the Conservative Party over this matter and certainly it's already become visible in the Labour Party that There might have to be, or there might, as a result, uh, be a realignment across the political spectrum because of this. At the moment, we're in a period of uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen to Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, we don't know who would emerge as leader of the Conservative Party necessarily. They're both seeming to behave as if it's um, sort of business as as usual, certainly in in the case of the Conservatives, not so much in the case of Labour. But uh, will that stick? Will it will be business as normal afterwards? Will there be a, an acceptance that um, Brexit is inevitable and therefore uh, the old party politics will just resume? It's very hard to say, but my, my in- instinct is that it just simply can't be that way. Especially if, especially if, and this is where people in this room with, uh, with um, I hope our have shared sentiment about the matter, Um, has a really major part to play, because if those of us who are really, really passionate about staying in the EU, uh, really keen on the remain, if we don't give up, if we keep on with the campaign right the way through, even beyond the Brexit itself, if we just keep on fighting for this cause, it won't allow people to go back to business as normal and just accept something, which even people in parliament themselves been pointed out already you're dead right there is a majority in Parliament and I've had letters from, from MPs saying oh well you know of course I think it's an absolute disaster but <clears throat> more of my uh, constituents voted to leave than not so um, subtext I'm a bit more concerned about my seat than I am the future of the country so I'm not <laughs> going to be doing anything about it uh, and, and this, this is the worry so we really do have to keep that, that campaign going.
0: Well, what's, what's the role of an MP? To represent its constituents, or to, uh, to to represent their best interests.
2: Well, I mean, the, the, this is the, this is going to be a very fraught issue because Leave say they got a the majority. They got they actually got fifty one point nine of, of uh, percent of the vote. So that's it, end of story. They they got a majority, and that's democracy for you. Well, it isn't actually. I mean, it's not our constitutional democratic arrangement, which emerged from the very slow yielding by the ruling classes in this country, bit by bit, extending the franchise to making 32 and so on, um, <clears throat> knowing that uh, if you went all the way to direct democracy and you had weekly referendums on you know, a- any issue of, of government legislation, uh, the result would be an absolute mess. Uh, And it would be a mess predicated on the fact that only about 2% of the population would bother to take part in referendums every week anyway. So we don't have a direct democracy. We have indirect democracy. We elect people to go and do some thinking, find out the facts, and uh, act on our behalf. And if they make a mess of it, then we, we don't vote them in next time. The point about elections is that they happen periodically and not too far apart. So we've always got some kind of, of monitoring of the situation, then we can change our minds about things. What's so undemocratic about a, a referendum is that it looks as if it's one off. It's actually a snapshot of sentiment at a particular moment in time. And for Parliament, for MPs, to say that this referendum, which was set up originally as a non binding advisory referendum, that this referendum trumps their parliamentary duty to think of whether it really is in our interests to go as people at the moment think we should, uh, is, is a, a, a failure to enact their constitutional responsibilities. This is why I think one major arm of what we do has to be to say to, to MPs, look, you've really got to take your, your duty as a representative, not as a messenger boy or, or girl, but as a representative who's got to take uh, a, a serious look at the, uh, at the circumstances and make a judgment and act on the basis of that judgment. And the very worst thing is MPs who write in response to, to letters that we send them and say, well, I'm with you, I'm a remain, but, you know, the referendum, so my hands are tied, I'm just going to do what, uh, what they say.
0: What, uh, what what mandate has this given to MPs and to the government, this ref- referendum result? What? What does it empower them to do? Obviously to leave the EU, hmm. but that's, that can mean any number of different things. So what, what, what are they empowered to do?
1: Well, I mean, you know, officially the line is that the referendum was only advisory and, and not, not something that was set in stone, but essentially most members of parliament have interpreted the result, which, which by the way was not that close uh, in England. I mean, uh, leave one by seven points in England basically um, so you know before holding that second referendum I think you know there needs to be a lot of sort of grassroots work by remain but uh, MPs have uh, basically interpreted it as being start proceedings on uh, renegotiating the ter- uh, renegotiating uh, the exit and also uh, delivering uh, an end to free movement and replacing that essentially with a points based system um, now there are going to be discussions about Do we go into a transitional arrangement, an EEA type arrangement, which uh, other panelists might might like to talk about? Um, Do we get an arrangement that does deliver exemptions on free movement when, for example, the Swiss have been unable to? The one thing I would say is wherever we go next, I think it's critically important, and not everybody in the room will agree with this, but I think wherever we go next, it is critically important that we view the Result of the referendum as being legitimate, and we try to satisfy the uh, concerns and the anxieties of leave voters um, for the simple reason being that you know social groups in Britain have just essentially punched the elite in the face. I would not like to go back to those groups and say, actually, um, what you've just told us is not legitimate or. Do a fudge. I don't think that would help our democracy. I don't think that would uh, help our society. The one thing that's bubbling up to the surface as quick as anything is Englishness in this debate. You know, Englishness. We d- we don't talk a lot about, but that really delivered uh, something profound at the referendum. And I don't think that sweeping that under the carpet and saying, well, just you know, just because other groups in society don't like that result, well, let's you know, let's try and keep pushing back and pushing back. I think the first uh, thing we need to do is actually accept that it's legitimate and work around it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the result, of course, is, result, is the result, and it's, it's very clear. What it means, I guess, is the thing that's much more difficult to appraise. Well, it's not
1: difficult. It means we need to negotiate an exit from the EU, and we need to negotiate restrictions on free movement or put into place a different system. That, that's, the, that's essentially well, the, the message that Leave voters have given the government.
0: But none of that, other than the leaving the EU bit, none of it was on the ballot paper, was it? You know, it, it is assumed that it is an issue about immigration,
1: but it's. Uh well, this this is where we start heading into the debate among some conservative circles, which is oh, actually this was really about sovereignty. This isn't about free movement. Every major, serious survey, with the exception of Lord Ashcroft's poll, which I have issues with because of the questioning, every single major survey is pretty clear. Uh, I mean, it's 100 clear. Uh, the primary motive for Leave voters was immigration. It's not, in my view, even up for dispute. Sovereignty, a distant concern. Uh, now, we can have a debate about, you know, is that right, is it wrong? Um, you know, is, is it sort of morally acceptable, or whatever? Um, but that is primarily what these voters want to see. It's why they gave four million or so votes to UKIP at the general election, and it's been pretty evident in public, opinions, uh, public opinion surveys in Britain since the 1960s. The only thing that's sort of disguised what we saw in the referendum uh, is that we have a first-past-the-post system, and those preferences have had to be stretched into different parties. And this is what's so unique about the referendum. You know, Europe cut across the left-right divide as an issue. So you get social conservatives on the right, and you get around 35% of Labour voters who want Brexit. So the main parties found that very difficult to, to manage, but the message, I think, was unequivocal.
2: Can I, sorry, I don't want to,
1: just the two of us to be
2: taking up all the oxygen here, but just for a minute, just like to push back on this point about the legitimacy of the outcome. Um, I, I think you're dead right that, uh, a lot of the motivating sentiment must be taken seriously, and you're you're also right that, of course, it's an immigration issue. And it's also about those people who formed, as it were, the heartland of the Leave vote, were feeling very disaffected and very uh, separated from the process, nobody taking an interest in their concerns and the like. Um, Putting the blame for that on Europe making making very, very generalized promises about what would happen if we had retained, quote unquote, our independence, um, uh, and uh, leaving it completely open, exactly what the roadmap would be for addressing the concerns that those people had, was a major fudge on the part of the Leave campaign. There is a very, very good case uh, for, for saying that the Leave campaign was dishonest in many ways, and that Quite a, a margin of the leave vote might have been persuaded to vote leave because of those dishonesties. And so I don't know that it's entirely a matter of <laughs> about I also think I think if there were two serious mistakes, there shouldn't have been a referendum in the first place. I mean I was sort of been grown up by grown-up uh, um, political uh, sensitivity should have recognised that there was a problem that needed to be addressed. But if you're going to have a referendum, then b- b- because of, of, the, um, of what was at stake in it, the voting age should have been lowered to 16, because this is about the future. And also, for, for, for something with such a major constitutional and, and national impact, uh, a simple majority is simply not enough. Everywhere else, in every other mature and sensible democracy, if there's going to be a referendum, it has to be a supermajority or a double majority. And the fact that it was simple <laughs> majority is scandalous. Uh,
0: OK, well, that, that, I mean, that seems a, a, good, a, a good time to talk, about, uh, uh, well, to talk about petitions, I suppose. But first of all, uh, sorry, Takis.
3: I, I entirely agree. I think the decision to have a referendum is, is highly questionable. Um, I also don't see the referendum as a celebration of democracy, rather as an illustration of post-truth politics. And I think a a, a claim can be made that there was a a lot of misleading information. Now um, just to be devil's advocate, uh, whenever uh, peoples of European Union countries have been asked to vote um, on matters of European integration, the result has not necessarily been favorable to the European Union and I think we need to bear that in mind. That by no means justifies the, uh, the, the way the referendum was conducted um, but I think it is something that, that, that uh, political elites both at European Union level and at national level ought to bear in mind if the idea of, of, of European integration is to work. Uh, now I mean, we, we talked about the reasons that, that might have led people to uh, vote leave. Uh, I wonder what are the, the political effects, and, and, and to me they are very di- uh, 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 very disconcerting, uh, almost disheartening. First, uh, I don't think that we, we, we end up with more democracy. If anything, we end up with less liberal democracy. Uh, somehow the idea is cultivated that democracy Uh, equates to majoritarianism, and this is not true at all. I think the European Union has done an awful lot for protecting fundamental rights and also an awful lot for dispersing political power. This is, I think, uh, an aspect that has has been overseen. By having more centers of political power, in fact, it uh, uh, helps the citizen, It it empowers the citizen. So, so i don't think we're going to end up with more democracy uh, I think irrespective of the motives um, uh, of voting no um, the effect is that that, that the, the the no vote empowers what appear to me to be the wrong causes uh, it really does it, it it does not project a message of inclusion uh, it does exactly the opposite and, 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 it, and it empowers all sorts of wrong causes um, it also places, I think, the United Kingdom in a trajectory of conflict with the European Union, the, the European countries, and I think that, that um, is not good. It's going to lessen the political influence that uh, the UK will have. Uh, I, I don't see it as a recipe leading to more economic prosperity or to alleviating a, a social and economic differences.
0: Well, was, I mean, those were all issues that were essentially sold as part of the Brexit package taking control having more control having more democracy uh, no negative economic consequences now we've got a leadership election someone's got to someone's got to become prime minister someone's got to deliver on what i would think were quite was quite a difficult uh, agenda to fill so just uh, do, does anyone want to comment on the legitimacy of of that mandate? Whether, does anyone feel that there should be a, an election or a return to the people to discuss the That's issue? Bit, yeah. James,
4: I, I think the problem is now we've had the referendum. We're
0: basically, like basically, on what Matthew said. I think
4: we're stuck in that anything we do now, or any, as a country, is going to have to be reflected in terms of the results. So. Basically, we're screwed in one of three ways. If we, we, we need to, if we don't leave the EU, if we somehow weasel out of it, then there's a, you know, 52% of people very, very, very angry um, and discontented with the result. If we leave the EU but have free movement, we, um, again, have some very angry people who don't get the results they are expecting. If we leave the EU and get rid of free movement as well, we're screwed anyway because the economy melts down and everything goes horrible. As we, <laughs> um, so there, there's, there's not an optimistic way, but I think the trouble is we do have to sort of accept the referendum has happened. I mean, maybe a second referendum could void that, but I think selling that to, to people
3: would be, would be quite a tough ask. Well, I, I think one way yeah. in which... Sorry, I, was, I was simply going to say the conundrum here is that the referendum implies a binary choice, whereas, in fact, the choice is not binary. I mean, <laughs> the European Union affects all aspects of... All aspects of, of economic, uh, social life, uh, issues of culture, issues of, of values. Uh, so, uh, to say no, it, it's easy. What to do uh, requires a government program. It is not something that can be entrusted to the executive solely, in my view. I think I
1: just like to contribute to that, that specific point. I think that's that's right. In that, if you look at the British Social Attitude Survey and. It 's been running since the 1970s it 's seen as you know the gold standard of surveys it 's not just a, a, an opinion poll and it asks people when it comes to Europe basically, do you want to leave do you want to stay or would you like to stay in Europe but a reformed Europe and pretty consistently, the most popular answer has been outside of the binary choice, which has been i 'd like to reform britain's relationship with Europe, um, you know hinting perhaps that large majorities ultimately want to stay in. But, you know, before we sort of go down this line of, you know, um, a, a line that actually makes me feel uncomfortable after what was not a close referendum. This was decisive in England, uh, and I keep saying that. Absolutely. Well, it wasn't in, in Scotland, London, and Northern Ireland. Um, but, but, but elsewhere, you know, 521 constituencies in England. So if you want to run a general election on this issue, that's fine, but leave will win, um, you know, as things stand. Um, But I've heard a lot of sort of, not tonight, but in in other sections of the media particularly, a lot of of condescension, sneering, you know, let's just wait for leave voters to pass away, you know, fairly sort of, (laughs) fairly fairly kind of, you know, um, dismissive sort of, dismissive stuff. Um, But the reality is, we did have a, Uh, an opportunity to negotiate and reform our relationship with Europe and we weren't given very much and David Cameron failed to deliver very much. So we did go down that option uh, and what we got from that option was not satisfactory for a majority of the population so when confronted with that vote they said no thank you.
3: That that assumes that people voted on the basis of the settlement negotiated by the Prime Minister, and I'm not really sure. Well, that was what
1: the debate was about and the campaign was about, wasn't it? In January and February, we had a national conversation about a reformed uh, relationship with the EU.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure how how much of the conversation was about the provisions of the new settlement negotiated by the Prime Minister. But that comes back to the point of, of, of the way the, the referendum question was put, which which seems to me to have been a failure of political judgments. If the question was, would you like to stay in the European Union on the basis of that settlement, people would have a more concrete choice and the government would have more leeway to... To negotiate something else, the, the the way the question was put to the people was really in favour of leave. In fact, uh, behind what appeared to be a very unbiased process, I think leave was favoured.
1: I, I think that's why the question was altered on the ballot because it was originally seen to be, um, you know, not not impartial. Uh, remain, leave uh, followed the stay. Uh, the stay, uh, uh, was it stay-leave or stay-go, which was considered to be too favourable to leave. I mean, you know, we're now arguing about the questioning on the ballot. I think um, outside of, um, outside of uh, conversations, um, you know, in, in particular, uh, you know, pockets of the country, I think it's, um, you know, what we saw at the referendum w- w- was fairly conclusive, was followed what was preceded by negotiation with Brussels. It did not deliver very much. Um, And that is what we have to live with. Now, five, 10 years from now, maybe there's another opportunity for a referendum and everybody can have that conversation again. But this debate that we're having nationally at the moment is not getting anybody anywhere.
0: Okay, well, let's, let's move on then. Let's move on.
2: So, <laughs> just, just,
1: just before we do that, oh, could, could, could
2: I ask Matthew?
1: <laughs> See this? We'll, we'll move on in a
2: minute. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry. But I just want to ask Matthew, uh, insisting on, on the, uh, the size of the margin in England um, outside London, do you think that if, if uh, another referendum were to be held at the end of this week, let's say, that leave would have 52%?
1: All of the polling that has been released uh, since the referendum, look at the latest Ipsos, Mario, Comres, completely refutes the buyer's remorse thesis. This is, a, this is I would suggest this is a construct of, um, you know, remain-leaning uh, newspapers and such, that actually this can't really be the real, the real result. You know, th- this is the real result, and if we go back to the country in a week and say, can you do it again, um, my worry would be, um, you know, the the Leave vote um, increases.
0: Okay. Well, it may depend whether they
1: hold uh, commercial property funds or not. Um, <laughs> well, don't, don't, <laughs> just don't forget, just don't forget one little quick thing, and then I'll be quiet. There was a very revealing Comrades poll a few weeks before the result, which suggested most people, 63%, w- were perfectly willing to accept a short-term economic cost for a Leave vote if it meant they had greater control over the country's borders. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that is an insight into the Leave vote that is very regularly swept under the carpet, that for some people, this was not just about uh, GDP. For some people, this was about something else.
0: Well, I I, I find... Um, I probably haven't looked at it as much as you, but professionally I, I look at these things and try and understand which direction the country's gonna go in. And combining the result and the servation and the Ugov polls, I came to the conclusion that there seemed to be a firm majority who wanted to retain access to the single market even if it meant well, that's a different question. Able, even if it meant not being able to to, to limit free movement. Uh, because that's you know, that's the impossible duo that needs to be reconciled by the the coming government. You've been told you can have the single market and restrict labour. It seems unlikely that that's achievable unless the Europeans are bluffing in some way. So now somebody has to kind of reconcile that, which is what's going to presumably either happen or not uh, in September. Um, But uh, let's let's talk about uh, whether this result... Can be overturned either legally or democratically. So there is a few. There's a few. You can see who I'm looking at here, uh, Takis. There is a few uh, suggestions. One is that uh, first of all, Article 50, the the invocation of Article 50 has to go through our democratic, uh, our normal constitutional process. I think. So does that mean it has to be voted on by Parliament, or could Mrs. Ledson, for example? Uh, tweet it on the 9th of September.
3: <laughs> I, I think the, well, we are here in, in, in legal terms, in, in uncharted territory, so this is really heaven for lawyers. It's heaven for academic lawyers, if there are any of us left uh, as a result of the no vote, and also heaven for, for practicing lawyers. The, um, the story in the corridors is that uh, someone from a city, uh, from a city bank, uh, co- calls a, a solicitor's firm and says, is, "Is it true that you charge a flat fee of, of five thousand pounds for three questions o- on Brexit?" And the lawyer says, "Yes, certainly. Well, t- t- tell me the other two questions." So, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so, the the truth is, we are in, in terra incognita. Uh, this is the, 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 the there is no precedent to go by, and I think in legal terms. There's a series of questions. First of all, how to manage the process, to, uh, and how to manage the process uh, is is extremely complicated. I think it is uh, extricating uh, ourselves from the from the from European Union law is probably the most uh, momentous event uh, since the restoration of of the monarchy. I would say so. And the reason for that is that the, the, there is so much European Union legislation, there is um, a different kind of legal methodology, so it's going to be an extremely difficult task and my understanding is that the Civil service has not prepared for it. The only preparation has been really from the Treasury and some of it from the Foreign Office. but it is going to be a huge task. So I think there are the, the following issues, just to outline them because I do' not want to bore you with the details. At at this stage, but I'm happy to answer more specific questions. First of all, uh, it's a matter of English law. How, how is a decision to, to withdraw to be taken? Does it need, and there, I think there are two main issues here. Does it need an act of parliament, uh, or can it be done by the executive? Now, that's a difficult one. Um, I, on a personal level, I, I retain an open mind, uh, but I think uh, my provisional view is that it does require an act of parliament, uh, I, I think in any event it would be folly not to have an Act of Parliament, uh, precisely because leaving the European Union is not a binary choice, it does require a fully-fledged uh, economic and political uh, a blueprint and I think this is really for the electorate in fact to decide be- not to... Before you go on, a show of hands, if it requires
0: an Act of Parliament, who thinks that there would be... A, who thinks one would pass? Yeah. Okay, I would have thought it probably would. I think, for for the reasons that that you mentioned earlier, you know, it's difficult to go back to your constituents and say, "I know you all voted out, but I said we'll stay." Uh, Okay, and uh, I mean the the other.
3: (laughs) 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 Okay, so well, um, so that that's the first issue, whether it will require an act of parliament. I also. I I think there is a very, very good possibility that the the issue will be litigated. I think that some people will argue that there has to be an Act of Parliament and it cannot be done otherwise. Okay, and then there's the, not the Scottish, a a new Scottish question. (laughs) And then the second question is the question of Scotland, because according to the the, uh, Act of Scotland, the Scottish Parliament has an obligation to comply with European Union law, uh, and also its consent has to be given for any changes to the devolution arrangements. So if you put these two together uh, in the event of, of exit from the EU, then the Scottish Parliament will no longer have to comply with uh, EU law, which means that this cannot be done without its consent. So um, expect a rough ride there, I think. Yeah? The, the, these, are, as a of, these are, as a matter of national law, I have not, have not even got to EU law questions or international law questions, which provide different dimensions. So I think, just very broadly and very briefly, the the first issue is how to manage the process. That's one uh, question. Second issue, what is going to be the new arrangement uh, with Europe? Uh, We tend to overlook that. It is extremely important before the the referendum, uh, uh, the the press reported that there there have been no fewer than 30 alternative arrangements proposed by uh, various sections of the Eurosceptics. Hmm? Okay, well, if perhaps chan- challenging it
0: legally might be just a bit more divisive than we we might ideally be aiming for. Much better if everyone just changed their mind, wouldn't it? If, if there was evidence that everyone had changed their mind, what could change everybody's mind? Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps uh, London declaring itself independent of the rest of the <laughs> United <laughs> Kingdom. Is that? <laughs> Is that your motivation, James? Sorry? Is that your motivation?
4: Uh, well, I, I started the petition as a little bit of a joke. Um, it was I, I, suppo- Bad start. I supported the Remain campaign. I was very disappointed. I stayed up all night watching the results. About half five in the morning, you know, David Dimbleby says that's it, we're screwed. Um, and so I thought I created this petition just to be just so like frustrated Remainers, you know, would could sign it and we could all sort of cry in frustration together. I thought maybe a hundred people had sign it. Uh, since then, it's had, I think, 178,000 um, signatures and people have started taking it seriously. I've got like hundreds and hundreds of emails from people saying, let's start a party, let's have a campaign, let's do this thing. Um, even, I think even, um, even Anthony Grayling has, has signed on to the Lundependence Movement. You're a disciple of James's, um, right? <laughs> and, yeah, um, so now I'm thinking, well, what can we, what can we do with this? Can, I mean, I'll be honest, and maybe I don't want to disappoint anyone, I think, there's, is there anyone who supports the campaign in the room? There's a, a few of you. Limey, okay. I don't, I don't want to disappoint anyone. I'm not sure London pendants is particularly plausible at the moment, although I guess two years ago um, you would have said leaving the EU was a bit remote. But, um, but, if, but you know, I, I don't think we're going to get uh, guard posts on the M25, machine gunning down, um, anyone trying to get into London or anything like that. I don't think we're going to print money with Barbara Windsor on. Um, but... Um, at the same time, I, I, I think you know, maybe if not full independence, maybe London can get greater devolution. Maybe we can have something like Scotland, uh, which will allow us to somehow remain, if not in the EU, but in the EU in all but name. I don't know. Maybe adopt. You know, I'm, I'm not going. I'm, I'm, I'm going to look scarily away from the professor of international law here, who knows more, <laughs> more than this. Who <laughs> knows about this? Well, why don't you look hopefully towards him? Well, yes. I will hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a way we can somehow get London to just remain in the EU? I mean, Scotland has huge range of powers over its own laws. We've got a bigger population. Can't we do something a bit like that and... Take, can't we take control? It's not,
0: obvious. not
4: uh, obvious at the moment
0: how it can be done.
4: That's not a no. <laughs> uh.
0: Bear in mind, if you ask two more questions, yeah. that's a massive bill. <laughs> What what, what do you think, Professor Grayling? Is is James
2: underselling the prospect? Uh, Well, I I think the practicalities uh, look rather daunting, I suppose. I mean, it would be marvellous if if the whole country could stay in the EU. That would be the desideratum. Uh, But it's it's not in the interests of the country as a whole, and certainly not in the interests of London, for us to be leaving the EU. And I'm sure there are lots of people uh, whose... Whose livelihoods, whose futures, whose um, whose work every day is so entangled with the the EU that as the realities dawn, and I mean we've already had you know several cold douches of of, of reality as a result of the of just of the vote, and we haven't even left yet. We don't quite know what the arrangement's going to be. That this must be a wake-up call. This is why I feel um, you know I'm very sympathetic to the analysis that that, that, that Matthew gives, but uh, but I am much less less inclined to give up on my wishful thinking that there are plenty of people who are changing their minds about it as the realities dawn. Which is why I think that a very, very vigorous, very well articulated campaign um, to uh, change minds, to press Parliament, to think differently, to get MPs to vote with their judgment and not, not with their anxieties about the next election is something that we have to do. It's something which is worth doing because even if it didn't work out, at least it would uh, it would give us a sense of satisfaction that we had done our utmost. And I think it would lay down a very serious marker. You know, you, the, the, our partners in, in Europe are very afraid of the right wing in the Netherlands, the right wing in France, looking for the Nexit and the Frexit and, and so on. And, uh, already, of course, there have been calls for referendums there. The,
0: the Frexits are there and at the back <laughs> <are there.
2: laughs> So... Um, so they've taken a pretty strong line on this, but I think the great, the great movement of history has to be for all the European peoples and nations to, to work together. And these setbacks, and this is a very major one, but it just could be people look back on this in 100 years' time and see it as a, you know, as a major obnubilation, a major bump in the road. But um, if those of us who are very keen on the EU, just keep on and keep on, and especially with younger people. It really is down to them. I would love to see a very vigorous, very articulate uh, movement on the part of of the young, all the way down to the 14, 13 and 12-year-olds, whose futures are very much at stake here. And that would would keep hope alive, even if it meant that it was the hope of being able to rejoin the the Union in in a few years' time.
0: Okay. Well, I mean... I, th- I think there's there's no di- di- disputing uh, what uh, r- Professor Goodwin was saying in terms of the general gist of the Leave campaign. There was an anti-immigration aspect to it. I know some people who voted uh, Leave on the basis that the EU restricts lots of things, and one of those things, they argued, is that it, it, it creates a distortion towards uh, EU immigration and away from... By, by implication, uh, international immigration. So Shannon is, is here, um, and you are on the receiving end, I suppose, of legislation uh, to do with non-EU uh, immigration. How are you finding that?
5: Well, to be honest, being on this panel, I feel a little bit out of place, um, understandably. Um, I'm American, and um, I've been sort of hit by a legislation this past April um, where I need to be making a minimum amount of money um, of £35,000 in order to actually get indefinite leave to remain um, by year five of being on a highly skilled tier two visa. And, I mean, I've been here for eight years, I've kind of made my life here. So, it's, it's quite difficult for me and I feel torn about it. I, I mean, I wasn't able to vote because I'm not, um, I'm not officially a citizen um but i think that this that this legislation kind of sheds um puts it puts brexit in the spotlight in a way for immigration policy in general and i mean we don't really know what's going to happen for eu immigration
0: who, who, have you, have you who is the campaign engaged with uh?
5: so um so we're engaged mainly right now with sort of the SNP party, which is kind of our target at the moment, because we think that sort of going upwards and being engaged with them, especially if they gain some, some sort of independence, might kind of be the savior for uh, non-EU citizens. Uh,
0: so, and you have, uh, it, it would be pointless, would it, to try and engage with the conservatives or Labour or something?
5: Well, I mean, we've, we've been trying. Yeah. Um, we've been tr- and, and that's kind of a struggle that we have is, is because people say, oh, this, you know, if Brexit happens, this will be really good for non-EU people. But I'm, I mean, I don't think that's the case. They're not going to change this law for 20,000 people a year. Um, they're just trying to minimize as much as possible and kind of say that they have minimized immigration.
0: And what kind of response have you had from the SNP then?
5: It's been really positive. I mean, we um, it sort of initiated a debate through a petition in Parliament, and they were our most active supporters. Um, they're basically willing to do anything we want. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: Professor Goodwin, do you think, uh, I think there's a, a, a chance of a, a, a following on from the EU debate that there is a more internationalist agenda? It was certainly something that was. Certainly, something that was promised by some people in the Remain campaign, perhaps not specifically relating mm. to uh, to Labour.
1: No, I hope so. Uh, I mean, I've had academic colleagues uh, who have been thrown out of the country uh, for uh, you know, not the same reasons, but similar reasons related to the the new uh, the visa system and um, some of the treatment. Um, uh, of a colleague, one colleague in particular by the Home Office was absolutely disgraceful and was in the national news um, and hopefully, I mean hopefully it does take our immigration debate in a, in, in a sort of productive direction because post free movement, I mean assuming there are some kind of um, changes around that, you know, one the Labour Party in particular has to think outside of the box on that issue, otherwise it's not gonna have a viable long-term coalition. Uh, I mean, the Labour Party is in desperate, desperate trouble, and it's not just about Corbyn. You know, its it's entire coalition is fragmenting. And and the Conservative Party may also, post-negotiation, begin to think about what this point system would look like. And I think, you know, fast forward a year or so, two years or so, we may have, you know, a new national discussion about what those uh, boundaries are around immigration, and perhaps what 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 a new system is going to is going to look like. Um, but when you have senior politicians on both the Labour side and the Conservative side saying, actually, we need to now think about what's going to follow uh, free movement, um, it's clear that you know we we are going to have a, a new debate uh, at some point about that. And I hope that those those examples will be. Uh, you know, will be, uh, uh, you know, isolated. I think this
5: kind of can start a precedent for how the treatment of EU uh, citizens as well. I think that having this sort of law enacted now Hmm. for one group, I mean, means that it it can definitely happen for another.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the statements of Theresa May and so on has been, you know, they've been out of touch with where public opinion is, you know, particularly on the role of, in presence of EU nationals. Um, but, but, you know, both of the main parties are also... I mean, I'm not surprised the SNP are willing to do business. I mean, I think they You know, they've just been dealt with a, a pocket aces, and they've got, they've got... You know, they'll engage with anybody and everybody to get um, that second referendum. And they still have some problems around that. You know, mass opinion in Scotland is not yet in favour of a second referendum. Um, and the economic argument is going to be difficult for Sturgeon to make post the oil crisis and there is a flip side actually I would briefly say there's a flip side to our economy going sort of downward and perhaps that will revive the opportunity for remainers there's a flip side to that the next big debate in Europe is the Italian banks that's the next big debate in the autumn basically whether the Italian financial system will survive the debate after that will be Marine Le Pen in France and the debate around the same time will be the alternative for Germany breaking through nationally. So while our economy goes through problems, um, Europe is also now going to go through a succession of big challenges. Gert Wilders as well in the Netherlands who's also pushing for a referendum. So we're going to have these two two courses running simultaneously. So it might not be that levers are looking at Europe and saying, actually, it's all really working out over there. Maybe I need to rethink my decision. Um, there's also a good chance that the Turkey deal with the migration crisis may well fall through as well. So I don't want to be. Maybe I'm. I'm sounding very gloomy today. I, I'm sounding very pessimistic. I don't. I don't mean to be, but I do think there are challenges on both sides that are going to structure our debate.
0: Well, I, I, do, I do want to. Um, I do want to end on an upbeat note. So in a moment, I'm. I'm going to go along the panel and I'm going to ask you for your kind of your bullet points of what you want to see happening to improve you know, improve life, improve our, our, our relationship with the EU, improve the general sense of um, empowerment that, the, that people have. So we'll do that in a moment, but, but first let me just quickly ask you, because we have talked about uh, Scotland, but just uh, Irish reunification, is that a possibility? Oh, okay. Well, they <laughs> politically no, legally perhaps.
1: You know? yeah, well, anything's a possibility now, isn't it? I mean, uh, James might be leader of the Labour Party by tomorrow. we <laughs> <laughs> oh, support for that. Uh, yeah, okay.
4: <laughs> I don't think. I think I'd be even less electable than Corbyn. I'm, 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 I don't think so. I'm on record saying I want ever closer union. I think that's a good idea. So. We might have to yeah. check how many, how many
0: members we have in the, in the audience, but it's probably she not, not got the really 600,000 that are required. Yeah. 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 Okay, so Professor Grayling then, what do you want well, to see, uh, I've probably got a bit of a
2: sense of this, but yes, what do yes. you want to see
0: for a better future?
2: <clears throat> I'm not prepared to give up yet on this question of whether or not we can we can oblige our MPs. To do their duty by the future. That's that's what I think we should be working very hard at. We've got a yeah, and we've got a window of opportunity me, now before the you know the 9th of September, new uh, leader coming in the Conservative Party to try to to change sentiment in in the House of Commons and to get them because you can put various questions in. You can say, look, we leave the European Union. It makes the European Union itself weaker and poorer. They're our main trading partner, so we are making our main trading partner worse off. Which is going to make us worse off because. We're not going to be able to switch our trading relationships um, all that quickly and effectively. So that's that's point one against us. I bumped into uh, um, the broadcaster Paul Camaccini last weekend, and he said, you know, the result of this leave vote is like losing a war. We could lose territory. We're certainly going to be worse off. Uh, um, We've done ourselves an injury. And it really is like that. I mean, this is self-inflicted harm. We've done damage to ourselves, to our European partners uh, potentially, and, and until it's no longer possible to reverse this somehow, to find a way of doing it, even given all the difficulties, and and uh, you know, I think I think Matthews pointed out that there's going to be a very hard sell in England, given the rise of English nationalism, which is very worrying. Nevertheless, it really is worth fighting for.
0: Okay. All right.
3: So. Hackers. well I share that analysis and I second it I would say the, uh, the best possible scenario my, my my top line would be exactly the same uh, I think it is worth a, a not giving up uh, my, my bottom line I would have thought would be uh, to, to to ensure that that certain values that the that the membership of the European Union has uh, helped us develop uh, remain and that we deliver a message of inclusion that we continue to feel civis europeus, as it were.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I I think the best thing we can do now is to if not go for full independence, um, go for what I'm calling Devo London, so we should support um, Sadiq Khan in pushing for greater devolution, because let's face it, it's going to be a bad few years, but if London has more control over its own powers, it can theoretically uh, you know, respond uh, better to London's problems, and London does have very unique politics. I mean, if you look at Sadiq Khan's last manifesto, and indeed Zach Goldsmith, both campaigned on issues, uh, which the mayor basically had no control over. They were all like, I will lobby central government about X, Y, and Z, so um, more powers for London does seem like a you know, sensible achievable and positive outcome
0: and they, and they don't really have that much power does it the, no, the, I mean being London, London mayor looks great fun but it's uh, yeah I think, I think
4: it's basically it's like you can sort you play with trains
0: and you yeah, cut ribbons yeah, exactly. which
4: sounds yeah enormous fun Painting basically a different yeah, London's got a huge housing crisis the only way we're going to solve it is by either building more houses and having rent controls and things both of which are powers the mayor needs so if that can happen or if, if, if somehow we can make that happen that would be you know a demonstrable good change. So I think that's probably the best outcome. And the other thing I'm quite optimistic about is, I'm, I understand in September, when we get a new Prime Minister, they'll be giving 350 quid, um, million quid a week to the NHS, so we've got nothing to forward to as well. Um... Are, are you
0: going to tell him more, shall I? <laughs> <laughs> Shannon.
5: Um, so mine are based on my migration, obviously, and I'm not an expert, but I think that laws, like the 35k threshold, they kind of set the tone for trade and movement between leading economies, um, and there's nothing really written uh, for um, EU, uh, EU immigrants in the EU treaties um, that, that they can retain rights in the UK, so I think that we need to, to fight uh, for more reasonable immigration in general, um, regardless of what happens. Um, And also, I'm in the market for a new job at £35,000. So (laughs) um, if anybody has anything going in digital, let me know. I'm brilliant. I almost swore there as well. Uh,
1: So I guess my my hope would be that uh, we see something that we didn't see during the referendum. Uh, I think the referendum could have been uh, a great deliberative moment in British democracy where we could have talked to one another... Uh, and we could have actually seriously had a conversation about what kind of society we are and where we want to be. What we saw instead, actually, was great polarization, where Remainers were talking to Remainers and Leavers were talking to Leavers, and there was no real uh, exchange and dialogue. There was no marketplace of ideas, right, which is is the essence of, of democracy. So my naive hope would be that we now go into a deliberative moment in Britain about how to make this work. Not everybody wanted the result on June the 23rd, but if sections of the country that are aggressively remain start to separate, start to um, pursue their own agenda, we will only become more divided as a country. We will not at all get into a better place. So perhaps my tip would be maybe we should just have a conversation about how to make this decision work because that ultimately is how you're going to win the respect of your opponents and get them to listen to your arguments over the longer term, not by saying I'm going to go off and do my own thing because I don't respect your views and I don't really uh, view your opinion as being legitimate because that's what these voters have been told for 50 years, right, by the political parties uh, and by this is sort of a very different section of Britain. Uh, I would not replicate that strategy over the next five uh, to ten years.
0: OK, well, we're getting... We <laughs> so we'll come to questions in, in just a moment, but so uh, is, there, is there not a justification for this kind of devolution to the cities? Do you, do you not think that that can create... You, you think that would divide society
1: more? Well. Yeah, but I mean, the, I might have got the petition wrong, but it seems to, you know, I'll check it out later. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but I, uh, it sounds to me as though that's coming more from a point of we don't like the decision, let's push London down a different direction, rather than let's make every uh, city uh, work a little bit better. Why don't we have a similar petition for Manchester? or yeah, yeah. Sheffield, right, let's do that, uh, because it, are, is, it isn't all about... Uh, there
4: are other oh. regional secessionist movements now. Since doing the petition, people have emailed Franchise. me saying... Support Franchise. it. Cambridge and Bristol and everywhere Franchise else, so. OK, there
0: you go. Right, OK, well, let's, uh, let's engage the audience then, so uh, perhaps we could have some questions. Uh, Secessionists.
6: <laughs> so this is for anyone who wants to answer it. You're in a room with ten representative Leave voters, and if you can convince them to change their mind, then the Brexit is cancelled. What concessions do you offer these ten voters? Thank you. What concessions
0: do you offer to Brexit voters to change their minds? Uh, well, anyone can take that, but I'm looking at Professor Grayling.
2: <laughs> um, well, but they—they they, they could come to free courses we could lay on on the concept of representative democracy. <laughs>
4: I'll chip in, but I'll defer to everyone who's cleverer than me. Yeah. Everyone else, but um, no, I, I think you know the reason Europe and immigrants get the blame for everything is because for the past generation politicians have been blaming them for everything, and you know they, people have been screwed over in in these in in many of the Leave areas. So surely the way to win people over would be for a government to proactively try and help people in other areas by creating more inclusive political and economic institutions. So you know, change electoral systems so people's votes count, redistribute more money so people, you know, have, don't get angry about not having any money.
2: Thank you, thank you.
0: Okay. All right. uh, that was, that was incidentally an excellent question, it, uh, it was brief, uh, it ended with a question mark and it gave the <laughs> panel a good uh, opportunity to reply, so um, Madam.
5: Um, I know that um, obviously in England the uh, leave to remain ratio was um, like not very balanced but overall it was quite equal but I've noticed that you know socially there is kind of a demonization of leave voters and I was wondering if you think like for everyone I was wondering if you think that's kind of dangerous for our country that the 52% of people are being seen as kind of like bad and you know stuff like that. Mm.
0: So demonisation of Leave voters and demonisation of, of the old is another thing that I've, mm-hmm. I, I've heard about. Um, what does anyone? What do, you th- what, what do you think, James?
4: What, 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 okay. Well, yeah. No, I, I think there is a problem. I think there is a, a danger there. Um, that, I mean, I was talking. I was. I was. It, we, we're all cocooned in our bubbles now. That's the thing. We all get our news through social media. We've, I, I think I know maybe three or four people who voted Leave, and they were all, you know, left-wing lectitors rather than. You know, you know, leave voters, he'd expect, but yeah. So I think we need to figure out how we can, you know, understand other people and, and get close to them because otherwise, gonna, the device is going to persist.
1: Yeah, uh, left-wing Euroscepticism was the thing that really didn't take off at this referendum. I thought. Mm. I mean, I remember Paul Mason's piece saying, you know, I really want to leave Europe, but I won't uh, at this point in time. And I sort of expected a lot of, you know, modern-day Tony Benz running around making the case for for Brexit, but it didn't. Uh, it didn't really happen. Um, no, I mean, I think the question really gets to the root of why we have become so divided in recent history. And, you know, I tweeted this out the other day, and I just... I just, just a couple of stats, but I think it's quite revealing. Um, if you look at the 20 local authorities that gave strongest support to Remain, 45% of voters had a university degree, 42% were professionals... 26% clicked non-white on the census. Only 11% were pensioners. But if you look at the 20 authorities where leave was strongest, only 16% of voters had a degree. Only 23% were professional workers. Less than 5% were non-white. And nearly 20% were pensioners. You know, and those stats, in a way, reflect you know, the divisions that we've been talking about. And I think the problem for the group of voters that you're uh, uh, sort of alluding to, the Leave voters, is that for decades they've just not felt as though their anxieties and concerns are uh, respected uh, or or seen as being as of equal measure to, to others in society. And that has been corrosive and it's eroded trust under the surface. I mean, this vote was not a shock. I mean, I'm surprised that people found this vote surprising. I think, that speaks to the, I think that speaks to the insularity of certain communities in this country that they woke up and thought, Brexit, how could this happen? This was a long time coming. This was evident in the uh, disturbances in Northern England in 2001. It was evident in support for the far right. It was evident in support for the UK Independence Party. It was evident in support for the fact that working class voters were completely leaving the political system, something that nobody really noticed after New Labour. This was a long time coming, uh, and I think the root of that is this question, which is they felt that their views, uh, that their interests were not represented.
0: Did, did any, anyone manage to change anyone's minds? So what, what struck me about the, uh, the debate was that if you tried to engage with anyone on the subject, you did become very polarised very quickly and everyone just sort of retread, entrenched their uh, opinions, and perhaps it's trying to do everything in 150 characters with numerous hashtags, I don't know, but it it, it was, you know, it seemed very difficult, perhaps because it was a binary issue, perhaps if it had been in an election with different manifestos to choose from. But Did, uh, did anyone change anybody's minds?
3: Or? <laughs> I, I think that's very difficult to know, uh, but what I would say is that certainly it appears to be the, the, the government, although it had an official policy of supporting the remain, didn't really do all that much. I don't think it engaged. It it engaged at a very late stage uh, trying to deliver a positive message and that was in uh, in the aftermath of years of of, uh, (laughs) uh, anti-European rhetoric. Um, So I I don't think it was done with any passion. I don't think it was done with any vision.
0: Yeah, well, it fed an equal amount of disinformation on both sides as well.
2: Let's say that uh, on... um, the question of the demographics of the Leave versus Remain vote, um, actually that that identifies a a much more serious problem than just saying we have to address the concerns and the interests of the people who voted Leave. Because uh, if you were to be extremely frank and say, well, would you like to address their concerns and interests by agreeing with them and having the country that they would like to have, then perhaps the answer would be no. Uh, do you, you know, do, is that, is that your picture of, uh, of of the new Britain, the the Daily Mail Express Nigel Farage Britain, is that what you want? Well, what this suggests is that there has been a dramatic failure, and I think it's wonderfully exemplified by the failure of Labour to engage yeah. its constituency uh, on uh, on behalf of Remain, to, to to give some some leadership and and perhaps it's our education system perhaps it's the nature of the public debate uh, you know the public conversation in the uk um, when you look at the at the at the prints, for example and especially the tabloid press is is a very it's not a, it's not a great one it's it's a very polarized and partisan one and it's sometimes a very simplistic one so maybe that's where the problem lies how do we how do we improve people's general participation in the conversation and the level of information and the level of maturity of reflection on these matters. That might be the long-term challenge that we really have to address. Okay, Uh, madam. Um,
7: Just a very quick comment. Um, I campaigned for the the Remain campaign in Ealing um, and I did actually manage to convince a couple of people, unfortunately not enough. Um, And I felt that the trick was always to to really listen to people first and listen to their concerns because a lot of them had very legitimate concerns. So every conversation that I felt was successful started with just listening to somebody else's 10-minute rant. Um, And then when you sort of, you know, when that ended in a question, then you started to answer the questions. And people had very serious and very, uh, you know, very well-informed questions about the EU. And they very much felt that their politicians and and, um, maybe even their school systems and, you know, the the wise people on TV were never able to explain certain things to them. So um, I want to throw a question back at you, which is... um, In the aftermath of the referendum, is there a need to maybe increase education about the EU in Britain, and how could that be done?
0: Okay, Okay. might be rather bolting, uh, locking the door, I suppose, on that one, but uh, um, who
2: wants to pick that up then? I I think the answer has to be emphatically yes, because... uh, um, as you know, there was a tremendous spike on Google of people looking up EU after after the referendum, which is an amazingly disheartening. Fact, uh, but but it did it did give rise to the very best post referendum joke, which was that the England football team all started looking up football on Google after the. I uh,
1: <laughs> I think it's really. It's another great question, because if you look at comparative surveys, there is no doubt that we in Britain know less about the EU than most other EU member, people in more or less every other EU member state. Now, there will be exceptions, and there will be people in the room, no doubt, who know a lot about the EU, but generally we're not informed about the EU. And it it takes us back to the point made earlier about, you know, why don't we talk about the benefits of EU membership a little bit more? And we we undertook an experiment before the referendum where we gave groups of voters different messages about the EU, gave them negative economic messages, you know, Eurozone crisis, you know, no growth, gave them positive economic messages, you know, look at how Britain has done well in the EU, and and, and the same on, on immigration and culture. The one thing that pushed support for Remain more than anything else was when you give voters positive messages about the EU and the reason I think that that's the case is because for 40 years we've had a very Eurosceptic press and When people are then exposed to positive uh, Arguments and messages about the EU they think you know actually I didn't know that We then gave that research and evidence to number 10 We offered it to all parties said you know that's the deal with the research you've got to offer it to everybody Uh, And so we know that people in number 10 read it Um, and then I saw a campaign that was almost, maybe not on the doorstep for individual campaigners, but I saw a national campaign that was almost exclusively negative in tone. This, that this, was this, about the problems with Brexit, not the positives yeah. with EU membership.
0: So this is what Juncker said, isn't it? If you, if you, if you, to, well, to Cameron, if you, if you spend all day, all day, every day telling everybody how awful Europe is, you've got, you can't be surprised. When they Absolutely. To leave Europe.
1: And for British voters, this was the, the third fear-based campaign in, in as many years. We had Scottish independence, we had uh, the 2015 general election, and then we had the referendum. And all three of those campaigns were based primarily mm. on negativity and fear. The reality is he wouldn't have been
0: Prime Minister because he wouldn't have been the leader of the Conservatives if he'd been a Europhile all his career. Isn't that right? Or I mean, the the nature of British politics is such that it's not possible to become a leader in it with with giving the message that needed to be given.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not possible from from now onwards, at least in the short term. Um, I mean, it's it's you know. if you believe the rumours and you believe the sort of John Redwood stories and so on, David Cameron was, was very Eurosceptic. And we know for a fact that Jeremy Corbyn instinctively uh, was Eurosceptic and may well have voted leave despite what he says publicly. Um, <laughs> but you know, Corbyn also, I think, as, 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 as was referred to earlier, it was, a, was a major factor uh, in the result in failing to, again, communicate a pro-EU message. I was struck a week before the result, YouGov poll, 43% of Labour voters did not know where the Labour Party stood on the referendum, the party that wanted to take us into the euro, and Tony Blair and Gordon Brown—they did not know what Labour's position was.
4: So, and I was going to say, the day before the referendum, uh, Corbyn held his final rally to rally the, the troops to vote in. Uh, Waitrose opposite the Guardian offices. So, <laughs> <laughs> that. I wonder why I Remain lost. Sorry, I'm going to share that. Uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Thank
2: you. Wasn't the referendum far more about economic inequality and deprivation than the EU? I represented a North East Wales constituency at Westminster which voted to leave. It has a very low number of immigrants, very low, but it has high economic deprivation. In two of the four towns, male unemployment is over 30%. I also represented later uh, a a constituency in the Scottish Parliament parts of which also had high economic deprivation in Kleppmannenshire and Fife. And yet, because they had the Scottish Parliament and a government which, in a sense, had released the pressure cooker, pressure, they voted to remain. Mm. I would like Professor Goodwin's comment on
1: that paradigm. Well, I can't, I'm not sure I can explain it, but I I, I mean, I think the, the issue of economic inequality completely underpins the referendum. Uh, Wales is a perfect example of that Uh, you know when you look at not only the Welsh Assembly elections but also the referendum votes by authority and you see Murphy Tidville and Wrexham and you know those South Welsh Valleys in particular basically the home of the Industrial Revolution voting on mass for for Brexit not only do you begin to realize the scale of the problem that is facing the Labour movement but you also begin to realize just the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sheer level of inequality between South Wales and North London, the you know. Are our escape, that's what it comes down. to. Immigrants.
0: We've got a microphone up at the top. Okay, so we'll give maybe uh, this lady at the front, please. Thank you.
8: Thanks. Um, oh. um, yeah, I've been trying to understand what's been going on by taking as macro and, and a sort of view of it as I could, and I got to the point where I sort of emphatically agree that we should never ever have had a referendum on this. It is not a referendum issue. And it's even more sort of galling that that referendum was called um, so that David Cameron could get the UKIP votes from UKIP within his manifesto to say, I will have a referendum on the EU, vote for me instead of them, which then highlights the problem with our electoral system in that we don't have PR so that we have to play these stupid games. And it's like this game has ended up in this huge mess. And I think that what makes me very sad is that I totally agree with all the comments um, to do with the fact that both, both sides have lost here. It's not that the Leave voters, we should go and... I voted to stay um, that they should be deep demonized or should be treated as having done the wrong thing. They were asked something that is barely kind of able to be voted on by par- parliamentarians and set them themselves. The EU is deeply complex. Um, And so I think uh, what I'm saying really is kind of quite a radical um, proposition of I almost feel like we need to have a truth and reconciliation on this and say (laughs) the the referendum cannot be held to, I'm sorry we ever called it, you know, but they stand up (laughs) and they say... And that, and that, the Conservative Party say we have let you all down. We have divided you all. And Jeremy
1: Corbyn's (laughs) elected.
8: And 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 just that we need to move on with the facts, and we need to rewrite all of the systematic dishonesty that went on during the campaign on both sides. That would be my radical proposition for this. I don't know what anyone's views on that is.
0: I'm not sure that required an answer, does anyone? (laughs) You've got my vote,
2: I think. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm with you on that one. Yeah,
0: okay. You may may be the mayoress of James's new... uh... (laughs) Right, um, Madam, there's some significant straining over there. Hi,
6: thank you. Um, I started up just before um, James O'Malley did, a few days before the... um, referendum, the London independence campaign and the reason I did that was because my partner who's non-white was subject to a drive-by racist attack in the north of England. Um, Does the panel think that we can really get through uh, and have a national conversation when there's so much uh, racism, homophobia, transphobia, anti-disabled phobia in this country and so much of it is being driven by the media? I think it's very very difficult for us to actually engage in this uh, this, uh, conversation. I would challenge professors Goodwin and Grayling to um, say how we could actually engage in that conversation when there's so much hate being driven by the media.
2: Well, it was terribly distressing to see, uh, racist attacks and, and, um, really awful behavior. And there was a, there was a case of some youths on, a, I think it was a bus in Manchester, uh, attacking an American because, because he was, a, a, an African American and they assumed that he was some, you know, sort of undesirable immigrant into our country, pouring beer over him and beating him up and what have you. I, I just think it's disgraceful that, that kind of thing, not acceptable at all. And the Brexit vote seems to have, you know, popped a bubble on that one and made some people, I don't know that it's a, that it's a huge number of people who will act out their xenophobia and their racism, but it's, it's kind of encouraged some people to do that. It's terribly ugly. And uh, I'm afraid to say it is a perennial uh, blister on, on all societies that this happens. Okay. Again, it's one of those things where, where you have to keep up relentlessly and systematically the effort to change people's attitudes and behavior and to protect the rights of, of people, of everybody, to their choices, their style of life, to, to, to what they are, uh, to, to argue for it, the legitimacy of it. This is, in, in a way, a kind of accidental outcome of the, of the Brexit thing, that, it's, that it seems to have given some people permission to, to act out their attitudes. But it's a, it's a universal problem and not specifically, I don't think, a, a referendum problem. Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: can, can, I, can I just chip in here very quickly? Because I think that's, a, uh, that's uh, you're raising a very important issue. I think it is as important as it can be. And I think it links to what I said earlier that the, the, the leave vote has empowered the wrong causes. Uh, mm-hmm. There are just two, it, it, it is part of a wider anti human rights rhetoric which has developed uh, o- over the last years. The idea being that we have. Uh, too, too, too many rights, that they, that rights are abused. And I think the, the short answer to this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, to my mind a dangerous argument, and the short argument is this. First of all, we need to remember uh, on the basis of historical experience that regression is possible. What do, the fact that we have achieved so much in terms of protecting the rights of the individual does not mean that uh, rights cannot be taken away i think we need to remember our history so constant vigilance is required uh, i think that's very important secondly if you think that human rights can be abused then surely you must accept that uh, state authority can also be abused in which case the the question to ask ourselves is this where would you rather live in a society which allows the abuse of state authority or in a society which allows the abuse, as it were, of human rights. I think these are issues which, to my mind, are indirectly, at least, linked to to the debate on on Europe. Time is
0: basically up, so I suppose we're going to take two more questions, we'll take them together, we'll deal with them, and they are that guy with the blue shirt there and the guy with the black jacket just behind. And I'm terribly sorry to all the thousands of other hands, uh, but we do.
9: Thank you. Uh, I'll be as brief as I possibly can. Uh, I see this, um, uh, this meeting here and the, the reaction from the, the uh, Remain campaign generally as a, as, a, as a middle-class knee-jerk reaction to what has happened. But I think that the, the situation we're in begins with the fall of the burning wall, then there was only one possible world outcome from that. Uh, as Fukuyama said in his book, The End of History, you know, capitalism and what he called uh, liberal democracy, we probably you should call it neoliberal democracy now. Um, so can I just ask that had the vote gone the other way, in the same proportions, would we be having meetings like this or would we assume it to have been a done deal?
6: Okay, and it was. Just to James, uh, you've obviously tapped into a, a zeitgeist. <laughs> I, I was just interesting, interested, how do you plan to organize that zeitgeist into action, whether it is for a full independence or for more uh, support for Sadiq Khan to, to get some autonomy for London?
0: Okay, well let's 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 deal with that one first of all. Yeah. And that, that's a really good question.
4: To be honest, at this point, I haven't thought through what to um, <laughs> to do next. I mean, I've put about as much thought into this as um, the Leave campaign put into what they were doing. Um, but um, no, my my hope is that now. I had like eight TV crews at my house last weekend, so it was hard to think. Um, but now I'm hoping that I'll be able to somehow figure out how we can turn the London independence movements, as we apparently are, um, into into something more meaningful. I mean, I, I, I wonder if Shea Guevara woke up one morning and thought, "What the hell have I started?" <laughs> but um, but um, yeah, I, I haven't figured it out yet. But when I do, um, I will. I will. I, I've got, I need to get back to everyone who's emailed me, and then we'll figure it out and we'll we'll do something. Quite we- what? I don't know. Yeah, but,
0: you, um, but, you, you could, but you could perhaps uh, merge with the alternative London independence movement that we heard about. Well, earlier. quite. If, I, if I've learned anything over,
4: over the past referendum campaign, it's
0: that strong, you know,
4: let's work together strengthen and strengthen numbers. Yeah, st- stronger in a reform, whatever. I don't know. You, know yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
6: you,
0: can't, you don't need to reform your movement no, already. Not, not, yeah. It's not really yeah. at that stage yet. OK, and then the other question was really if if, if the vote had gone the other way, uh, would there have been as much uh, as much discussion and debate?
3: Uh, mm. Well, I, th- I think that's that's an, an excellent question, and, and the answer to that is I hope so. I, I'm I'm I, I'm just expressing a personal view. I am not a political campaigner. I strive to approach things with the uh, with the agnosticism of the of the of the scholar of the academic. And I think yes, I hope we would we we, we would be having a lively discussion had the vote gone the other way. I think the problems would be the same. Uh, To my mind, the way of addressing them would be different. I I would like to see a lot of reform, both at EU level and national level, but I think this is a separate question from whether the the interests of of this country are served best by staying in or voting out. Uh, So yes, I I would very much hope that we would be having as lively a discussion, uh, albeit with with somewhat different parameters.
1: Quickly on that, that question um, or, or comment, I, th- I think you could quite plausibly argue, and, um, you know, again, I don't think many people w- will agree on this one, but I think you could probably plausibly argue that things, things over the long run actually could have been worse for British society if it had gone the other way in terms of integration. And what I mean by that is if we... You know, the expectation going into the referendum was very much that we would have a 52... 55% Remain vote, if you looked at the polls, and we'd have a strong Leave vote. And the discussion around that was very much framed along the lines of the SNP in Scotland, and that we would be faced with this sort of awkward, large, but not quite majority, but large army of vote- voters who just, you know, want to rebel against, you know, the system forever. Um, I, I do think, and you know, again, maybe it's my, my political naivety showing through, but, but I do think there's more potential, given the actual outcome that we saw for these groups, to, for everybody to actually think about uh, you know, where we're heading uh, and how we can do that together, than there would have been had it gone the other way. I'm just, it's my instinct more than anything, I'm not entirely convinced that a remain majority Britain would have been as accommodating of, uh, of groups who, who perhaps lost out in that than, than we have an opportunity to be now, and I can already feel that 99.9% <laughs> of this room <laughs> disagree with me on that one. But um, maybe it's me living in the north for so long before moving to London. I'm not sure.
0: I think I think well, those shaking heads are just earth tremors. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we know. i uh, just,
2: just very briefly, but we know, but we knew from before the day of the referendum that uh, uh, if the outcome were the other way around, 52-48 40, to stay, that it would have been unfinished business. We were told that by Nigel Farage. The uh, campaign, the the toxic hostility towards the EU would have continued. It would have been unfinished business. The the things that Matthew says would have happened would almost certainly have happened. Um, You know, We all know there shouldn't have been a referendum, but given that there was one, the best outcome would have been a very significant remain vote, and that really would have silenced things for a a generation. Still, we've learned a lot from from the situation. One thing that we've learned is that um, uh, if you're going to get into something, if you're going to be a member of a of, uh, uh, really important uh, project like the EU project, you've got to be a full member. You've really got to yeah. take it to heart okay. and make it work.
0: <laughs> OK, well, at uh, that stage, we really must draw the physical part of the debate to a close, but nevertheless, the social and digital debate can continue we've got a hashtag conway uh, eu uh, so continue to post your questions and uh, and give give your views all it remains is for me to thank our guests uh, our our panelists and to also thank you for coming along and making this such a great debate